This week I read an interesting article in the newspaper titled, Italian Churches Go Into Quarantine. And the article says that the clergy in Italy have taken some flack regarding the coronavirus. To slow the spread of the disease, government authorities in Milan, Italy, have closed public worship services. While the media commended this cautious and common sense approach, it also criticized spiritual leaders for not doing more to provide, and I quote, a strong spiritual presence. The article said, no one, in, no one is urging the clergy to commit suicide by coronavirus, but people of faith need spiritual direction on how to confront this crisis. One church leader is expected to broadcast on television uh, today ways people can pray for those affected by the outbreak. I read that article and it made me wonder, how would we respond to that kind of a health crisis in our community? What if the flu epidemic hit Champaign County? How would that affect us? And what would be the expectations in terms of spiritual support? And I realize I'm reading that article from the safety of Champaign County. And I'm also realizing that we have the technology to broadcast sermons and worship songs for spiritual support. But it made me ask this question. Can strong spiritual support be sufficiently delivered online? The article refers to the year 1630 when the Black Plague ravaged Milan. And at that time, one pastor urged his colleagues, go to the plague with love, like a prize, if toward another life, if only a soul can be saved for Jesus Christ. That's a far more aggressive approach than an online sermon, wouldn't you say? But you know what? Back then when it hit, faithful pastors actually did that. Faithful pastors kept preaching and, and praying and serving at great risk. And many died in one of the most horrific plagues of history. It, it, I really did some self-examination wondering, do, I mean, do I have the, just the guts to be able to respond in that way to meet your spiritual needs. <laughs> what I learned by reading that article is that some ministry can only be accomplished in the flesh. Sometimes you just have to be there in person. In person. Well, that rather sobering thought takes us to really what we've been talking about here at church lately. If this is your first Sunday at Windsor Road, uh, we are walking through this season of Lent, exploring 
the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. And we started last week, and we continue this series on up through Easter. Let's take a moment and let's recite the Apostles' Creed together here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, last week we learned that Christians may believe more than what has been recited in this creed, but no Christian can believe less. These are the matters of first importance uh, regarding the essentials of Christianity. We learned that the creed is organized by the Trinity. Did you sense that as we were reciting this together? It starts with God the Father and then proceeds through God the Son and then God the Holy Spirit. We also learned the meaning of certain words like Catholic. Some of you were very concerned about that word <laughs> and lovingly notified me of this in the fireside room last week. <laughs> you are such great listeners. You are. What we learned about that word is that in its original use, in its original use, Catholic was not a denominational label. Rather, it's, it's literally given. Catholica, uh, according to the whole. Meaning, I believe in the holy all-embracing worldwide church, the congregations that make up the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Think about it. All over the world right now, congregations in public services like this, some in secret because of persecution, some in a gothic ornate facility, some in contemporary facilities, but all over the world, some outdoors, some beside uh, beachside, uh, all over the world, God's people are gathering the all-embracing church according to the whole. Today, we learn the second article of the Apostles' Creed. We recited it. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's as far as I want us to talk about today. There's another creed in ancient Christianity that offers a more uh, developed version of God the Son, it's, it's the Nicene Creed. Listen to what it says. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Now that's a developed creed. In the global virus of sin, a pandemic of moral and spiritual corruption against a holy God, God the Son stepped into this world, not virtually, not online, but physically to provide salvation, rescue, and redemption to bring us into his kingdom. As Leroy read earlier at our call of worship, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want us to study this word this morning, this very important word in Christianity called incarnation. Incarnation. Now that's not so much of a church word as we might think as if we first hear it. I mean, who likes chili? Who likes chili con carne? What does con carne mean? With meat. With meat. It's not with meat. It's with meat. And the incarnation is God con carne. Huh? Yeah. Listen. Every day people are trying to answer four big sky questions. Identity, who am I? Value, do I matter? Purpose, why am I here? Agency, can I make a difference? The problem with those questions is that they deal with I. And what I propose what I propose is that these four questions be subject to a larger question, which is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Jesus himself said to his disciples. Well, the, the, the second article of the creed deals with this question. And I, I submit that if you answer that question, the other four will follow. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just talk about what the incarnation means. I want to define it. I want to talk about why we should believe it. I want to talk about what its significance is for our lives and what it tells us about God. And then I want to talk about how we should respond to it in light of its truth. What it means, why we should believe it what its significance is, and how we should respond in light of its truth. Well, here's the, here's the meaning of it. As Leroy read earlier in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The question, who is Jesus, begins not in Bethlehem with Mary Joseph, but in heaven with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Scripture says that God the Son spoke, and heaven and earth came into being. God the Son declared, let there be, and the universe appeared. The universe, mind you, the size of which we estimate to be 93 billion light years in diameter. 93 billion light years. <laughs> What's that? Buckle up. Uh, one light year, one light year is how far light can travel in one year. And light can travel six trillion miles in one, in one year. So let's do some multiplying there. Six trillion miles times 93 billion is, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I didn't even, what's the point, right? It's just, it's big. But that's, that's the observable universe. Ha, I can't comprehend it, but God the Son created it. Oh, and speaking of, you know, my brain being fried at that, let's talk about brains for a minute. Let's talk about our mind-bogglingly efficient brains. Your brain has 86 billion neurons. A neuron is a processing unit. It, it helps control your body and think your thoughts. And so your brain has, get this, 528 thousand miles, miles of nerve, nerve fibers transmitting information. You wonder why your brain feels so crowded sometimes? Your, your, your brain has an estimated 2.5 petabytes of memory capacity. That, that, that equals all of the information stored in all of the academic research libraries in the United States. That's 3,700. And for all of that work, your brain is fueled by the equivalent energy of a 20-watt light bulb. Who did that? God did that. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So with that in your brain, consider the central truth of Christianity. That this eternal son of God who created this universe wide and, your, and all of those miles of, of, of neurons in your brain. This eternal son of God took on human flesh. John 1.14 says, and if you want the simplest biblical definition of the incarnation, it's John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, this is the artist who steps into his own painting. This is the author who writes himself into his own story. Christianity asserts that the God who created this universe st 
step into it. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Mysteriously, mysteriously, the Son of God is 100% human and 100% divine. And, and if my brain can't grasp the, 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 the breadth and width and depth of this vast universe, if, if my brain can't even grasp all that's in my brain, it's a mystery that the Son of God is 100% human and 100% divine. And, and, and it's, it's not as if a divinity card was inserted into Jesus' human hardware in place of a humanity card. That's not what we're talking about. We're, it's, it's not as if you could take a blood draw and you'd see some glowing blood cells. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a mystery. 1 Timothy 3.16, Behold the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Now notice what the creed does not say. It does not say that the man Jesus acquired divinity. That's not what it says. It says that God the Son assumed humanity. He came down from heaven, the Nicene Creed says. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. That's a very important distinction. And here's why. Is, is it a movement from humanity towards God? Is, is Christianity about self-salvation? Does salvation start with humanity's self-ascent? Or... Does salvation begin with God and his movement toward us? Is righteousness by human effort or is it by God's gift of grace? The incarnation states in no uncertain terms that if God doesn't take the initiative, it's not going to happen. We love because he first loved us. The only reason why, why we are able to sing such uh, heartfelt songs in the music portion of our worship service is because God has got a hold of your heart. We love because he first loved us. If this world has any hope, help has to come from outside. We cannot fix the problems on our own. In fact, sin not only blinds us to the problem, we can't even see the solution when it's right before us. It's not like Jesus, you know, was born and the world said, oh, there you are. We've been waiting. What does John's gospel say in John chapter 1? He came unto his own and his own received him. What? Not. Yeah. He was resisted. He was mocked. He was run out of town. He was disbelieved. He was crucified. And yet, the Apostle John says in chapter 1, to those who received him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What is the incarnation? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation says that God 
moved first. God moved first. Well, some of you are here and you've been coming for several weeks. You may be here for the first time and you're exploring Christianity and you may be asking, why would Christians believe this? Here's why. Because the scriptures attest to this. There's no other way to make sense of their experience with Jesus of Nazareth. The, the Gospels concentrate Christ's life in, in you know, three to four years. And, and so the Gospels are eyewitness testimony. A record of people who lived with him and spoke with him and listened to him and observed him all day for several years. I mean, they, they, but they were with him. You, you, you're, you're going to be leaving me here, you know, within the next hour. We're going to be leaving one another. For some, I, I, I won't be able to see you until next Sunday, or maybe we'll talk a little bit during the week. But I mean, these folks, they, they lived with Jesus. You know, they, they saw his sock drawer. And what a remarkable person they beheld. I mean, what a remarkable person. And then they interviewed people who knew Jesus. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that, that you know, he interviewed people who were eyewitnesses. And Mary would have been interviewed. The, the folks back in the first century may not have had ultrasound, but they knew how babies were made. And Mary and Joseph attested, we did not know each other until after the birth of this amazing child. In addition to the testimony about Jesus, Jesus himself made claims that clearly showed he understood himself to be God. For instance, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus spoke to the winds and the waves, he cried out, peace be still. Well, that command echoes... Psalm 107, verses 28 to 30, which says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He, that is the Lord, stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew, grew quiet, and then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. In other words, what the Lord did to save a crew on a ship at sea in Psalm 107 is what Jesus did for his disciples on a ship in the Sea of Galilee. In other words, Christ identified himself not just as a teacher or a prophet, but as God. Oh, and another thing. Jesus often made pronouncements like, your sins are forgiven. C.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven, and he never waited to consult other people whom their sin had undoubtedly injured. He behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. Huh. Oh, and then Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. That's in John's Gospel, John 5, verse 17 Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. 
This is why the Jews began all the more trying to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Here it is. Making himself equal to God. And then there's that remarkable statement that Jesus made in John 8, 58. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. Who says that? What if I said that? Yeah, you'd laugh. You're laughing, Leroy. You would be right. Jesus said it, and people didn't laugh. Oh, and not only, not only did people attest to the incarnation, not only did Jesus claim to be God, but remember on that first Easter morning, the testimony of angels. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is what? Risen. The bodily resurrection of Christ substantiates his divine claims to be 100% human and 100% God. Romans 1.4 states that Jesus Christ our Lord was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Peter Larson once wrote, The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance and left through a door marked no exit. And that's why, that's why we can believe the incarnation. But quickly now, let, let's talk about its significance. What does it tell us about the God we worship? Well, first, it proves that God cares enough to get involved in the muck of our world. In Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel 34, the Lord expresses frustration that his people Israel are being shepherded by incompetent clergy. And in Ezekiel 34, the Lord says, no more. I will do it myself. Ezekiel 34, 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. What that means is that in assuming flesh, God the Son chose to relate to us in an unprecedented way. So in putting on flesh, he had a mom and dad. He had siblings who thought he was nuts. He had a relationship with disciples who often doubted him. He had to deal with skeptics and outright enemies, people who wanted him dead. <laughs> Those relationships did not ha happen <laughs> in the glorious splendor of the heavenly realm. <laughs> but when he put on flesh, he, he interacted with, with Roman soldiers and tax collectors and outcasts and prostitutes. He witnessed poverty and discrimination, pain and oppression. He did not deal with people from a sterile bubble. 
He inserted himself into a busy, broken, crowded, stressful city called Jerusalem. He had no handlers to protect him from interruptions and no buffer to keep him from injustice. But he came anyway. Furthermore, when he came, he put on new emotions. Christ put on new feelings along with putting on flesh. In the glory of heaven, with his Father, the Son was honored and esteemed and worshipped. When he put on flesh, he felt anger at a lack of faith in Mark 3, 5. In John 11, he felt grief over the death of his friend Lazarus. And in Gethsemane, he felt the terror of the cross. Mark 14, 34. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. He never said that from the heavenly realm, you see. So he not only put on flesh, he put on, he put on feelings. And no wonder. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. And you know what? When he put on flesh, he also felt conflicted. Remember when he prayed in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done, you see. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thine be done. Can you imagine um, a judge with an impeccable judicial rating being treated as if he or she were the worst criminal ever? I mean, what emotions might there be in, in being misunderstood, in being falsely accused, in being treated with contempt? Well, Christ experienced this. And why would he do this? What did we read in the creed? For us and for our salvation. The incarnation says that we really do matter to God. We really do matter to him. One author wrote, we say, I can't go on. Jesus says, I will hold you so you can. We say, but I don't think I can even believe that. Jesus says, even when you are faithless, I will be faithful to you. We say, but I feel so alone. Jesus says, I am Emmanuel, God with you, God never leaving your side. We say, what's the point? My life is over. Jesus says, I am your life. I'm never over. We say, but look what I've done. I'm dirty. Jesus says, look at what I've done for you. I've taken your dirt and smeared it all over me. You are clean. I am filthy. See me dirty on the cross. See you clean beneath it. We say, nobody wants me. Jesus says, I want you. I want you. Desperately, lovingly, crazily, I want you. Hear me, church. No one twisted the son's arm to make him enter Mary's womb. No one tricked him into being born into a world strung out on the meth of sin. He came in with his eyes wide open and his heart too. A wide open heart big enough to hold the whole world. The incarnation. What it is. Oh, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. Why we believe it? Because it's attested in the scriptures. What its significance is, 
its significance is for us and our salvation. And now we must respond. Now we must respond, and here's the response. Study Jesus, surrender to Jesus, display Jesus. Study, surrender, display. Do you want to know what the heart of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus. Study Jesus. Study Jesus all the way to the cross and all the way out of the tomb. Church family, study Jesus. Study Jesus. Study Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. This is not just, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is about surrendering your life and calling Christ the king of your life. In first century Rome, Caesar was worshipped as Lord. To say Jesus is Lord in the days of Nero, that's treason. That's treason. Let me, let me paint a clearer picture. Imagine yourself in a fancy hotel in Berlin during the 1930s for a dinner party. In attendance are lawyers and doctors and businessmen and military officers. And while the evening is mostly polite and cordial with small talk on everything from the stock market to the latest operas, a military officer suddenly taps his glass and proposes a toast to the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. And then just as everyone raises their glasses, you, being the committed Christian that you are, interrupt with an alternative toast. And everyone is startled as you proudly utter in your best German, Jesus, the Jew from Nazareth, is the true Fuhrer. Christians were not thrown to the lions because they said, Jesus is the Lord of my heart. Because the Romans did not care about the internal disposition of your heart. To confess Jesus as Lord was treason. And yet one right after another, our spiritual ancestors committed everything to Christ. Everything. Study Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. And then display Jesus' life. Display Jesus' life. So I've been uh, in, a, in a learning group with uh, Brother Joe Thomas from our church over the life and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor um, and ultimately gave his life, was martyred in the Third Reich. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer's definition of the church is this. Christ existing as community. Christ existing as community, it means that we as his body, as his presence, we go to the hurting and we go to the helpless and we go to the voiceless and we go to the sick and we go to the grieving and we go to those who need to hear the gospel and we display the life of Christ. And that's the purpose behind our, our missions trips and our local outreach efforts, our meals 
for the homeless, our, our partnerships with ministries from cross-trail outfitters to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes to InterVarsity, the Navigators. We, we, we act the way we think Jesus would act were he present, and in fact, he is present through us together, together. Incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. An incarnational church is one that is seen and felt and experienced in our community. Here's the question that haunts me. If Windsor Road Christian Church ceased to exist, would our community know the difference? The next time one of you goes to Hawaii, I want you to do me a favor. If you happen to be on the island of Molokai, I want you to go visit the grave of Pastor Damien. Damien. He was famous for his ministry to lepers. This was in the 19th century. He moved to a Kalawao village on the island of Molokai. And that village at that time was quarantined as a leper colony. And for 16 years, he lived in their midst. He spoke their language. He bandaged their wounds. He touched bodies that no one else would touch. He preached to hearts that otherwise would not have heard the gospel. He, he, he organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so that lepers could have shelter. He handcrafted 2,000 coffins so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said... Kalawao became a place to live rather than a place to die because a man of God showed up and offered hope. Pastor Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He got close. And for that, the people loved him. And then one day... He stood up in a Sunday service and he began his sermon with two words. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping him. He was one of them. And from that day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they lived, and now he would die as they died. They were in it together. One day, God came to earth and began his message. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us. He was one of us. He was in our skin. And now... We were in it together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In him 
We live and we move and we have our being. Go now and do likewise. Amen.